Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Uh, my next guest is a, a gentleman who explores the emotional world of ourselves, and he has written a book called Field Notes on the Compassionate Life, A Search for the Soul of Kindness. Mm-hmm. Perhaps something that our friend Vanda Marlowe once said was learning how to exercise your compassionate muscle. Will you please welcome Mark Ian Barish here to West Coast. Some of his other books include uh, Healing Dreams, The Healing Path, founding member, member of the Naropa University Psychology Department and filmmaker, and he lives in the Colorado Rockies, which qualifies you to be here on West Coast Live today. Yes, absolutely. Coastal. Besides, we're compassionate people here. Yeah. And very bright lights for a radio show here. We have a, uh, we're one of the only uh, radio shows, there are only a couple like this, that, that have a lighting director. <laughs> yes. It's Most people just turn on the switch and you want the dimmer. I don't know. It's a very visual experience. It's a very visual experience, but it, but it helps illuminate the subjects. Yes. I, I knew you were going to say that. Oh, you did. Well, all right. <laughs> Why is it that people are so compassionate and kind and feeling about animals, whereas... <laughs> We're, we're kind of ruder and meaner to fellow human beings. Well, animals don't talk back. Uh, except I did actually, for the book, uh, research a, a type of ape called the bonobo, who have a very uncanny ability to use language. They've got something like spindle nerves or something. Yeah, well, well, they have, uh, <coughs> yeah, they do have spindle cells, actually. Spindle cells. Which have to do with kind of empathy and compassion. They're, they're actually pretty nice for, uh, you know, uh, primates. These are the primates that especially enjoy sexual congress. Right? Yes, they say that uh, chimps resolve uh, sexual issues with aggression and bonobos resolve uh, uh, aggression with sex. So <clears throat> if a band of bonobos meets another band of bonobos, the uh, females will sort of go out and uh, conciliate while the, uh, the other males scuff their toes in the dust. And it seems to work. So uh, what can we humans learn about compassion <laughs> from the bonobos? I, I hate to say make, say make love, not war, but uh, that immediately comes to mind. But but the uh, but but we we as we as humans uh, will often become upset when we see something happening to an animal. Uh, you know, a, a whale washes up on a on a beach. You know, a, a bird dies. A favorite bird. You know, there's a there's an attachment in there that somehow transcends sometimes human compassion, you know, of what we as a people will do to another people that we don't like. Well, I think when we see helplessness, you know, and suffering, there's something in us that naturally responds. I mean, these responses are sort of crusted over very often in in a lot of us, and we're a little defensive. But uh, if you just look at the tsunami, for example, I mean, there was this outpouring, this this absolute global gushing of compassion and and help, because we saw other people in distress. It's like when you see a whale in distress. But then you take a place like Darfur or Rwanda, and, uh, or even as the subject of the novel in our next hour, uh, uh, Bosnia, Serbia, uh, we humans often sort of stand at the sides. We don't know what to do or how to act or whether to act, or maybe we don't want to act. Well, my theory is that we're learning. You know, a lot of this is culture. I mean, if you look at South Africa, for example, they created the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions to forgive each other after this long civil war. That is is a social invention. It never existed before. Um, We were never able to see a disaster on television and then give money to it. I think that a lot of this is a matter of cultural evolution, that uh, we can look at history and see that we've been at each other's throats for, you know, X number of millennia. But... um, 
um, I'm sort of one of these ridiculous optimists. I actually see signs of, of hope all around. And uh, it's not to say there isn't tragedy and cruelty in the world. I mean, I'm not Pollyannish about this, and uh, Darfur is a terrible tragedy. But you talk about the Balkans, and I've been there and talked to, uh, there's a, uh, there are groups of people that are working for peace now in a very fundamental way across uh, all the old lines of, of uh, the fault lines of that society. Um, uh, thinking about Rwanda, uh, the genocide there was you know, just a, a, a terrible occurrence in the late 20th century to see that again as sort of a Nazi Germany sort of extermination of a people. But there are amazing uh, initiatives now in Rwanda for this sort of reconciliation process to take place with Hutus and Tutsis, uh, you know, finding ways to forgive each other because very often that's the, the thing that sticks in the craw of humanity is that we can't forgive each other. We're, we're sort of engaged in clan warfare endlessly, you know, and at some point we've tried everything else. We might as well try kindness. So, so uh, oh. Wow, are you on some sort of list for suggesting that? <laughs> yeah. It's a radical kindness. Uh, when, but, but the idea of that, you know, when you look at some of these conflicts, there's, there's kind of this, um, I get a sense of almost idiots in a rat cage going round and round, and nobody, no human knows how to get off in, in some of these conflicts, or, or that there's some switch, biological, emotional, that gets flicked, just as it can get flicked on when people see images on television that stir them to send money. It can flick off to allow them, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a young boy to become a, a killer. Yes, it's absolutely true. Again, it's the power of culture. I mean, when I talked to uh, some of the Tutsis in Rwanda and also people in the Balkans, they said the whole thing began with media. You know, one one guy in Serbia said, uh, "Just think if all your radio stations and television stations had the David Duke show every day. You know, the Klansman. You know, in five years you'd have a civil war too." It's we are susceptible to these images. And in uh, Rwanda, uh, the Tutsis said that they were being called names on the radio. That was how it began. They were they, was, they were called Inyenzi, which means cockroach. And after a while, this one man said, "I starting to regard my wife as less attractive. That it it's insidious. It's sort of like a, a mental virus. But at the same time, there are positive." viruses that can spread and, and spread through societies. You know, I, I mean, if you look at something like the Ukraine recently, I mean, here was a society where, uh, you know, they had the whole apparatus of state and uh, tanks and guns and police and uh, army, and suddenly the whole thing just sort of dissolved into its constituent elements of uh, humanity. And people, you know, the apparatchiks left in helicopters. And, uh, you know, these things can, can unravel as easily as they can tie into knots. And I think a lot of it comes down to uh, people of goodwill actually being able to reach out across all the different divisions that we see. And, you know, sometimes it's not going to work. We're still evolving, you know. We're probably, uh, uh, if we talk about social evolution, we're probably in the amphibious stage. We're just, uh, <laughs> we're just getting to be land creatures of the land, you know. Moving slowly up from reptilian <laughs> life as a, as a, as a people. Uh, you quote Einstein in, in your book here. You say, Einstein himself once referred to our sense of separateness as, as people, as individuals, as a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. A delusion that limits our caring because it restricts us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Uh, to live in a world we'd really like to see, we must undertake a deliberate change in perspective. Our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all creatures and the whole of nature. 
Well, that's kind of the, uh, the, the hat trick of compassion. You know, if you look at all the world's religions, they always say, uh, love, love the stranger, love, love thy neighbor. You know, in the Bible, thy neighbor didn't mean the guy in the tent next door. He meant the guy over the hill, you know, the stranger, the, 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 the outsider. So the, a lot of the trick is to, you know, sort of find the things that we love in our own lives and the people that we love and then just sort of let that ripple out, you know, and expand it so there isn't a self and other all the time. That's how all these wars start in the end, right? You, you decide this person is the other. I mean, in, in Rwanda, it was your, your, literally your neighbors or even your wife. I mean, pe people were intermarried. It was the same in, in the Balkans. So, uh, you know, these, these are divisions that can be created and they can be sort of undone just by the, uh, the actions of the human heart. And, but it takes encouragement. It isn't like it just happens by itself. So how, do you, how, do you, how did you train yourself to, to deal with anger or hatred or dismay? Well, uh, I, I turned off the television was one thing. When I started this book, I decided I, I just didn't want a lot of bad news in the morning. You know, it's, a, it's not that I'm closing my eyes to it. And I had people tell me what was going on in the world. But, uh, you know, for example, I didn't sit in the bleachers during shock and awe. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just didn't watch it, you know. And I, I wanted to look for signs of, of hope. And uh, I found that just doing that, it's kind of what you focus on, you know? I mean, if you look at the world uh, th via the headlines, it looks pretty sad. If you look at, the, the, at history in the footnotes, you find, I think, the future, you know? Um, if you look at uh, historians like Josephus and Herodotus during the time of Christ and after that, uh, there was just some, you know, rabble-rousing Jewish prophet got nailed up, and who, who knew that was gonna be a social force of that magnitude? So I think, you know, in, in our times, if you really just sort of look, you can see that there's this emergent, sustainable culture, because it's the only way we can go. It's not really idealism, it's very practical. Uh, we're either gonna create a peaceful, sustainable society, or we're, we're not gonna make it. When you, when you set out, uh, the, the title of your book is very compelling, you know, Field Notes, you, you go out and you do research. How did you uh, find your way into Rwanda? Well, I didn't actually go to Rwanda. Oh, you didn't? No, I, I talked to a man in Washington who, who had been the Speaker of the House, actually, at, after the war, and had uh, conciliated with, with the Hutus. And, uh, you know, just to backtrack, you were asking me what, what I do personally. It wasn't just turning off the television. I, I sort of do these exercises. I'm, I'm a Buddhist by persuasion. And they, uh, like a lot of religions, uh, you know, religions are really toolboxes at their best. You know, they're not necessarily, I mean, they are ideologies and social structures, but in the beginning, I think it just started out as a technique for compassion. And, uh, you know, if it's not that, they might as well padlock all the mosques and temples and churches and put up a for let sign. But eventually, they, they became a template for power as well. I mean... Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's one uh, so social anthropologist that said uh, it becomes in-group altruism and out-group nastiness, you know. But, uh, but they're all... I've, I've worked there. Yeah. <laughs> but there are all these tools, you know, and uh, one of them, for example, is... Uh, uh, for jealousy. Uh, it's a very interesting exercise in Buddhism called mudita. Uh, it's called sympathetic joy. So when you feel jealous of somebody, uh, instead of feeling like you have less and they have more, and you know, wars start with jealousy, certainly, you know, you see the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, you know, what you can do is sort of wish that the other person gets more stuff. More, more goodies, and it sounds very counterintuitive and ridiculous and a little masochistic, but it's very freeing. You know, it's it's kind of like recognizing that these narrow states of hatred and jealousy are, are uh, self-punitive. You know, it's just no fun to live there. It seems as if uh, the acts of of hatred are more easily created by a leader than 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 a movement of compassion. That the movement of compassion has to begin at the individual level. Uh, whereas somebody can get in front of a crowd and stir them up to nasty action. You can't you know, get in front of a crowd so easily, I think, and say, everybody be kind right now. Uh, Gandhi did it. 
didn't do too. But, but he didn't. Uh, well, okay, good. Good an example. Yeah, I mean it can happen. So we got one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Martin Luther King. Yeah, Martin Luther King. I mean, you know, see, we, these are the people that we remember. I don't think we're going to remember the the current administration, uh, you know, in, in, far into the future of, of human history. But it's always the peacemakers. You know, and, and they are people that have an effect, and it's cumulative. I just think we shouldn't look at it as like, you know, it's two steps forward, two steps back, or three steps back. It's, it's definitely, you know, uh, two steps forward, one step back. And we, it's going to take time. Uh, and uh, I certainly don't look at, you know, compassionate conservatives as the exemplars we should be following necessarily right now. But uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Well, you know, I, I, think, I think... What was the name of that group? The compassionate conservatives, you've heard of them? Uh, you know, no, no, really. They're they're a group. They're they're, they're going to be on this morning. <laughs> the guys in the beards. Oh no no no, that's another group entirely. That's called conspiracy of beards. Oh. But compassionate conservatives. What an interesting idea. Has it been tried? Uh, oh oh yes, <laughs> and we see the results <laughs> unfolding before us. Yeah, and that which is why you aren't looking at the TV news. Yes, at the exactly. Uh, so for uh, you know an, an individual trying to find out. Um, about you know, where their own sort of compassionate center is. I mean, where is a place for somebody to begin? Well, I, I think obviously the, uh, not to be too gooey about this, but the, the heart's a good place to start. And, and you really just start with the thing that, that makes you feel the most heartful and just try to extend that outward. Um, you could start with a Leonard Cohen song. You could start with a Leonard Cohen song or a beached whale or uh, your best friend. But you know, it, it's, it's sort of, in the end, I, I really do think we have to uh, find a way to uh, love the people that uh, seem to uh, be standing in our way and, and uh, find some way. You know, it's, it's a hard time to do it, I admit, uh, but I think it's the only way. Uh, the book is called Field Notes on the Compassionate Life, A Search for the Soul of Kindness, and it's not a, a gooey trip he takes us on at all. Uh, Mark Ian Barish, the book's uh, published by Rodale. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thank you very much. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.